It has contributed to the rise and fall of civilizations, from people who have spent their lives searching for it to today's modern conveniences. Every single one of us is a stakeholder in it. G'day, and welcome to Humans of Agriculture. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and welcome to episode five. Today's guest is Michael Fox from the Fable Food Company. Fable are a relatively new entrant to the market. They are producing alternative protein products, including beef and pork from mushrooms. Michael has extensive experience as a global entrepreneur. He founded and led Shoes of Prey, a women's fashion business that was customising shoes for the mass market consumer. Michael is passionate about the food he consumes, and so founding Fable was a bit of a no-brainer. He understands consumers, mass markets, and how detrimental following a consumer trend can potentially be. I love getting the different perspectives. For me, I'm really excited by the emerging opportunities for all of agriculture, and alternative proteins is just one of them. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Michael. How you going? Hey, how you going? Yeah, good, mate. Good. How are you surviving at the moment? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Isolated like everyone else, and yeah, it's not too bad up on the Sunshine Coast. So it's pretty, uh, pretty isolated here normally, anyway. So it's not not so different. <laughs> yeah, cool. And so I suppose, how did it all come together to bring about Fable Food? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I, I yeah, I've been vegetarian for four and a half years. For me, kind of ethical, environmental, and health reasons. And so um, I've been doing Shoes of Prey for ten years. Um, uh, yeah, kind of finished up the Shoes of Prey middle of 2018, took six months off, um, just wanted to have a, yeah, have a, have a, had a, had a, had a break because I hadn't sort of had a break for 10 years or so um, doing Shoes of Prey. So I took six months off and just ended up reading about whatever kind of intellectually interested me. And for the, for the same reasons I'm vegetarian, just ended up reading lots about um, industrial animal agriculture and got sort of very passionate about, yeah, like, I, yeah, just think a lot of the systems there are, are kind of broken. It's, Bad, bad for the animals, often bad for the people working in the in the industry, and um, yeah, bad, bad for the environment, and then bad for the end consumer's health. So, yeah, just got very passionate about uh, like parts of that. At least parts of that system need to change, um, and uh, yeah, it was kind of the thing I wanted to work on most. I couldn't think of any kind of bigger problem I wanted to work on than than that. Have you guys identified the Australian market as a, a testing block, or is it? Is this where you really see a big opportunity to start with? I mean, I guess Australia is just, it's just a function of that's where we're based. It's not necessarily the yeah, best market to launch. I think it's still a good market to launch, uh, launch a business in. I mean, there's all sorts of surveys that say that yeah, somewhere between 30 and 50% of consumers like actively want to reduce their meat consumption. Um, whether that translates into actual behavior or not um, is the, is another question, but but if you can make it easy for them to reduce their meat consumption, they do theoretically want to do it. Um, so yeah, so in that sense, I think this the Australian market's a good one. Um, we do eat a lot of meat, like we eat sort of like more than a hundred kilos of meat per person per year. That doesn't even include fish. Um, whereas in Asia, it's about twenty kilos of meat per person per year. Um, so yeah, we're one of the largest meat consuming countries in the world. So it's probably another good good reason to uh, yeah, there's a big good good potential in this market. I'm 27, nearly 28. Um, I have my birthday in isolation probably. But <laughs> I do think there is considerations and, and as you were listing it, the ethical, environmental and health aspects. For me, 
um, when I'm thinking about what I'm consuming, that health aspect really comes into it. And so, yeah, yeah you know that if you'd eat red meat every night of the week, it's not a healthy diet at the volumes of what Australians do. But um, looping back, so you said the consumers want it and your experience with Shoes of Prey brought about what people want or say they want and what they actually want kind of are two different things. So what, are, what is it that you, you've learned from, from that? Yeah. And now I find it really fascinating. I suppose it might be a following question, but how can we take those learnings of what you've got? Because you're in such a unique spot of knowing a completely different industry that is fashion. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the big, the big learning for me, I mean, there are tons of learnings out of Shoes of Prey, but the big one was, yeah, consumer research is fraught with uh, all sorts of potential issues. So, in our case there, we'd done really well in this niche of women who were passionate about designing their own shoes. Um, all our market research indicated that the mass market wanted to do this too. We had literally tens of thousands of customers coming to the website a day every day designing shoes and not buying. And when we went and spoke to them, they were mass market customers. They said, yeah, we love the concept of designing our own shoes. Um, you just need to bring your retail price down, speed up delivery and make the design process simpler. And then we'll go buy, buy your shoes. So we went out and executed on that, delivered that value proposition to the customer, that mass market customer and she still didn't buy. And then watching her, what we realized is yet yeah, consciously, she thinks she wants to design her own shoes. She loves that idea of being creative, but when it comes to her actual behavior, she really, really doesn't want to. She wants to be kind of told what to wear by fashion magazines and Instagram and by the popular brands. So there's this disconnect between what people say they want and what they, what they conscious, they're not lying. They consciously think they want that, but deep down subconsciously they don't. So their behavior is different. And so I'm very conscious that there's potentially elements of that here too, like a survey that says 30, 30, 30% of Australians want to reduce their meat consumption. Like, I mean, you can clearly see there's a... I'm one of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but you love, you love the taste of meat. Um, you're, you're not going to turn vegetarian because you want to reduce your meat consumption. Um, so, and, and yeah, I've tried, I've, I've spoken to lots of these people and, and, and they're, yeah, they, they kind of want to reduce their meat consumption, but then watching their behaviour, they don't really do it. And, and when you delve into why, it's because they love the taste and texture of meat. There's a whole bunch of cultural things around meat, uh, habits, like the dishes they cook at home. I mean, I experienced that myself, like turning vegetarian. It's like, holy shit, what do I cook now? Because so many of my dishes are made with meat. It's like a whole behavioral change I had to go through. Um, but what I think, what talking to those people and watching their behavior, if you can make it easy for them to reduce their meat consumption, just eliminate those issues, like... If you can, basically, if you give them a product that has a taste and texture of meat, cooks the same way as meat, performs is the same price as meat or, or lower, performs in all the same ways as animal meat, then then they'll do it because there's no cost of, of doing it. They want to do it, but they don't want to pay any cost of doing it in terms of, yeah, taste, price or convenience. So, so yeah, if you can solve those things for them, then I think those people will reduce their meat consumption and you can kind of see that see that in the, in the market, in the growth of meat alternatives. And so I suppose if I'm to use myself as the test case here, when I'm thinking about reducing my meat consumption or where I'm looking at opportunities for it, it's in, it's at home and it'll be a dish that I could do myself on a Monday or a Tuesday, whether it's a risotto or a stir fry or something. But a lot of the alternative meat companies are targeting kind of restaurants and they're looking for those premium prices. Are you, are you guys changing the way you're thinking about that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, we're, t- we're, yeah, there's, di- there's different, different strategy, a few different strategies going on here and kind of elements to the strategy. So I guess our, our approach is we've launched into food service first. Um, and our logic there is um, food service is a great way to build a food brand, particularly in this category. Uh, you know, not, normally, normally when you go to a restaurant, you don't see the brands of the ingredients on the menu. But Beyond and Impossible have done a great job of kind of opening up um, the opening up the market here and kind of convincing restaurants that well, there's a few elements actually. So so restaurants can see this demand from consumers to want to increase their um, eat more plant based meals, and so I think Beyond and Impossible have done a good job of kind of taking advantage of that and and encouraging restaurants to put their brand on menus, and so we're kind of positioning Fable in a similar way. So we launched with we developed Fable with the kind of chef in mind rather than the end consumer. So we developed it to have a really kind of blank canvas so chefs can do all sorts of fun things with it. Um, and we, um, Jim, one of my co-founders knows Heston Blumenthal, got to know Heston Blumenthal over the last few years. And so we launched Fable with Heston at, um, at dinner by Heston in Melbourne. Now it's now closed, but, um, but Heston's also using it in, uh, in some of his UK restaurants uh, and is developing some more dishes at the moment with it. So we kind of developed it with chefs in mind. We're fortunate we got one of the world's best chefs excited about the product and, and using it. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're, we're prior to coronavirus, we were in 50 venues in Australia. Most of those had the brand on the menu. So the strategy there is um, uh, firstly, chefs are amazing for feedback on the product. Like we've learned a lot from Heston and the other chefs using it, which has modified the, how we've developed the product. Um, then secondly, it's a great way for consumers to try the product. So if you're in a restaurant, you see Fable on the menu, you order it and you eat it, um, you, and, and you're eating it like with a really good chef producing the dish, you're going to have a great experience with the product. You're going to remember the brand. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a good way to get, get sort of in front, get brand awareness and consumer trial at the same time. Um, and then that, then our, when we launch into retail, um, that should then feed into higher sales in retail. And, and that's what Beyond and Impossible have seen as they've kind of launched into retail. They've already got the brand. It's not like launching a brand new food product in retail brand that, and product that no one's ever heard of. And so when you position it in retail, will it be alongside, say, the, the meat products or will it be an evolving category that ends up sitting on its own? I mean, so the logic, the logic, and I think this is still, I think everyone's still learning in the category, but the logic is like we're, with Fable, we're not targeting the vegetarian or vegan consumer. You know, they're already eating plant-based. Um, and, and our mission is to help reduce our reliance on industrial animal agriculture, um, like particularly factory farming. So our mission is to convert, help flexitarians who, like, sorry, flexitarians, people who, those people who want to reduce their meat consumption. Um, our goal is to help make it easier for them to reduce their meat consumptions. I think when these alternative meats and alternative proteins come up, meat consumers will automatically kind of put a guard up. And so how are you guys breaking that facade at the start? Is it different language you're using to differentiate? Yeah, I guess the facade thing, I think there's different, there's different segments of the market. So I think there's, there's definitely like still probably the majority of Australians, um, you know, love meat and don't think about where it comes from and are just happy buying meat. And yeah, some of them will definitely put up a, 
and have a barrier to you know thinking like meat alternatives why why would i do that there's like just no reason for me to do that they've, they've not thought about the health reasons or the environmental or ethical reasons to do it so so that consumer that's at the moment isn't who we're targeting um who we're targeting is the person who has a like like you like you've you've read some things about the you know the health issues around eating too much red meat and so you want to you already want to reduce your meat consumption so you you're kind of open at least open to trying these things you know you're not you're not going to go vegetarian um, um but but if the taste and texture is good if the price is good and if it's conveniently available and easy to cook with then you, you might be open to replacing a couple of meals a week um instead of using uh, red meat using a fable braised beef for example the using the terminology of say beef and pork are you guys doing that just because it's it's the norm for how people relate to these products yeah yeah exactly i mean it's the, it's the easiest descript like it, it's the easiest description for a consumer to understand so going back to that flexitarian consumer we're trying to make it as easy as possible for them to eat plant-based like they don't want to change they want to eat plant-based but they don't want to have to change their behavior so for example the convenience around cooking the product like if you if we've developed it to have all of the characteristics of a braised beef then calling it a plant-based braised beef um, makes it very clear to the consumer okay if i buy this it's going to taste like braised beef hopefully it cooks similarly to braised beef i can see it's plant-based so i'm not confused that it's an animal product um, so it's kind of the simplest explanation for the consumer to understand you know, and, and there's lots of examples of this in the food category, like peanut butter. Um, you know, that name came from, you know, it's a product that kind of behaves a bit like butter. You spread it on your, on your bread, but it's made from peanuts as opposed to, um, as opposed to actual butter. Um, uh, you know, all the, all the milk alternatives, soy milk, that's a good description. It's made from soy rather than cow's milk, but it kind of behaves and, and tastes sort of, well, doesn't doesn't necessarily taste like animal milk, but you can use it in the same way as same ways as animal milk. So I don't think, it, yeah, in my mind, it's not it's it's a it's the best descriptor for the consumer to understand um, what the product is. Well, is there an area of the market where, for hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community, so we can improve community well-being and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, Go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. For instance, people are looking for a, a mix of, say, they go and buy their pulled pork, but then they want a kilo for the barbecue or whatever they've got with their friends, where you guys actually come in and I suppose you're diluting the actual meat content of that kilo so it might be say 500 grams of your product and 500 grams so you're still you're still getting the, the social aspects for instance you're still getting the health benefits but bringing say low alcohol beer into the mm. conversation and that's a an emerging market where you're still getting the benefits but you're diluting the actual so it's yeah low alcohol as opposed to no alcohol and yeah. do you guys 
fit in there maybe? Yeah, it's a good, I mean, it's a good thought. We, we haven't developed um, a product like that. There is, there is a, uh, at least one and maybe a couple of companies in the US that are actually doing exactly that. Like they're selling a product that is half, um, half animal meat, half plant-based meat. Actually, there's even a few in Woolies that, um, that are in the meat section um, that, are, that are designed like that. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we haven't developed Fable like that, but yeah, there's no reason consumers couldn't do that. Yeah, you could cook up some pulled pork or braised beef and and have have a have a half half dish. Yep. And so processing is one that comes up very regularly when it comes to these products. And for your product, at Fable, what's the processing? How long does it take for from growing as a mushroom to then being able to be consumed? Yeah. So that that was very much um, core. Like minimising the processing was very core to our whole sort of original thesis. Like I think there has been some some pushback in the category that um, that that yeah maybe this some of the first generation of meat alternatives um, uh, yeah have ingredients people don't necessarily understand what's in them. I, I think I, I actually personally think it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily make the products um, un, less healthy than than meat, for example. But um, but yeah, my own consumer behaviour and the way I cook at home is yeah I love shopping at the farmers markets, literally talking to the person who's grown the food that I'm then going to go home and and cook with so so I'm, I'm definitely that consumer myself so yeah it was quarter quarter developing fable so um yeah the product is is pretty minimally processed so the yeah the mushrooms are grown on a farm uh, they're they're dried in the sun um we transport them uh from the farm to the the co-manufacturer that we're working with um then we rehydrate them um shred them um, and that's basically the the mushrooms done uh, then we introduce the or mix in the other the other plant based ingredients. So we have ten ingredients in Fable. So the other ingredients are coconut oil, um, some soy protein, sugar, yeast extract, uh, tapioca flour, uh, salt, black pepper, white pepper, and yeah, that's that's ten. Um, so uh, yeah, so then we mix all of those ingredients in. Um, then we form it into when you buy a fable, it kind of comes in a little sort of ball shape. So we form it into little ball shapes, uh, then uh, then cook them uh, and package them. Yeah. So no artificial ingredients, um, no like chemical processing or sort of any kind of hardcore processing like that. Like literally all the ingredients are things you could have in your pantry at home. And is are the, are the shiitake mushrooms are they in Australia, are they grown in Australia or are they an international product? Yeah, no, we get them from uh, from overseas. Um, so yeah, basically shiitake mushrooms are just really not commonly grown in Australia. Um, uh, this, this, we grow quite a lot of agaricus mushrooms, so it's kind of the white button mushroom that you buy in the supermarket. That's the yep. most commonly commonly available and grown mushroom in Australia. Actually, in a, even then, we don't grow a huge volume of them. In Australia, we eat about 2.3 kilos of mushrooms per person per year. Versus in Asia, they eat about 14 and a half kilos of mushrooms per person per year. Um, so, yeah, the mushroom industry in Asia is just so much larger in, in, in every sense in terms of mushrooms grown, uh, any kind of work done with mushrooms to create different products uh, and, and mushrooms that are eaten. Um, so, yeah, we shiitake mushrooms, are, most of the world's shiitake mushrooms are grown in Asia, so, so we source them there. And then actually our co-manufacturer, um, is based in Malaysia, so we we produce Fable, um, yeah, with with a co-manufacturer in Malaysia, and that was also just a function of 
um, where the like where the skill sets were to be able to work with mushrooms. Um, there's really not much, you know. Uh, the, basically, the Australian mushroom industry is white button mushrooms are grown and they're sold fresh. You know, there's a little bit of canning of mushrooms and a little bit of other stuff processing going on, but not much. It's pretty much just grown and sold fresh. So to, there just wasn't the skill set to do anything um, at scale with mushrooms here. Ultimately, we do want to change that. We want to, we're developing a product at the moment using agaricus, that uses agaricus mushrooms. So, um, and, and we'd love to be able to produce that in Australia. So we're talking to some manufacturers here um, to do that. But for this first product, we needed to use shiitake mushrooms just because of the texture of the mushroom lends itself better to these slow cooked meats. Uh, and to do that, we just had to do it in, had to source the mushrooms and manufacture it overseas. Um, and how are you guys getting on at the moment? Are you having issues with getting product back into Australia with the world we live in of COVID-19? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's been not too bad for us, but um, definitely caused some disruption. Yeah, not as much as maybe other businesses have, have experienced. So we're kind of fortunate in that sense. But yeah, Malaysia went into lockdown uh, about three and a half weeks ago. Um, and so immediately, like our, our co-manufacturer had to close, um, like literally that, that day. Um, then the government, uh, food is, people obviously have to eat. So the government um, said that food's an essential service. So food factories can apply for a license to operate at 50% capacity. So about a week later, our, our co-manufacturer could reopen, um, but only operating at 50% capacity. So we've been able to produce just a little bit slower than we were before. Um, then there's obviously other elements to the supply chain, like packaging and boxes. Um, our packaging supplier, they were closed for about two and a half weeks before they got their license to reopen as a kind of food packaging factory. So, um, so yeah, a few disruptions like that. It, it looks like at the moment, so still the, some of the rules are a little unclear. It looks like we can't air freight anything out of Malaysia. We can only ocean freight. Um, so that, that's slowing down a couple of our orders that we might have air freighted otherwise. Um, uh, yeah, so few disruptions, but, but not too bad. Yeah. And so I suppose this might be more of a startup question, but at the moment, is there that opportunity for you guys where you nearly say, yes, the Australian market's the focus now, but while we've got the, the chance, do we go and have a dabble in Asia? They've obviously native to eating more mushrooms than what we do. Um, yep. you can start to bring in that, I suppose, westernized style of eating is is there an opportunity there that that would be the bigger market of focus as opposed to an australia or yeah definitely and and we launched in singapore a couple of weeks ago um yeah. uh the all the planning we'd done was launching into food service so that's obviously uh, uh the launch has been a little bit slower than what we what we planned um but uh yeah we're going into a couple of restaurants in singapore that are that are still allowed to be open and doing some doing delivery um, and then, yeah, we'll ramp up in Singapore so and, and across Asia. So, yeah, we're working with a fairly large Singapore government-owned food distributor in Asia. Um, they distribute a bunch of other plant-based meat products, um, Impossible Foods and some other ones, in, in particularly in Singapore, but across Asia. So, yeah, yeah, goal is definitely to uh, sell, the, sell the product globally. And, and yeah, we're in, we're in one of Heston's restaurants in the UK, the Perfectionist Cafe. And um, yeah, once coronavirus is over, we'll we'll start to expand more into the UK as well. Is Asia an area of focus for alternative protein? I suppose we've seen them pop up right across Europe and America, famously through Beyond. But is yeah, are people having a dabble in Asia? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And there's some like homegrown Asian uh, companies as well that are, have developed and are selling meat alternatives specifically targeted the Asian market. Pork is the most commonly eaten meat in Asia as opposed to beef in, in a, or actually is it even chicken now? Anyway, beef and chicken are kind of the top two in Western markets, but pork's the most common meat in Asia, particularly with um, the, the swine, swine flu issues in China, um, pushing pork prices up. Um, yeah, look, there's quite a few now um, pork alternative companies that have homegrown sort of Asian developed products specifically for the Asian market. Um, and yeah, all the, all the data says that this flexitarian consumer um, exists just as much in Asia as they do uh, in Australia and the US. And yeah, like, you, like, like um, as, you, as you sort of pointed out, um, yeah, Asian consumers are kind of used to eating a more plant-based diet anyway. So yeah, they eat a lot more mushrooms. Uh, than we do in Australia. Um, they eat about 20 kilos of meat per person per year versus in the West, we eat over 100 kilos of meat per person per year. So they're kind of already already partway there. So they're, they're, if anything, maybe even a bit more open to it than we are. I suppose what I want to do at this stage, I'll loop back to um, your shoes of prey, only because I think that's a really interesting example of where you've gone and tried. I won't say failed because you obviously would have gotten a heap of lessons out of that. But um, I don't think there'd be probably many of our listeners that would understand what Shoes of Prey was. So it was essentially um, a, a customer design or the customer had the ability to design their own shoe that was available to them. What kind of price point was that? And who was this mass market consumer that you guys had? Yeah. So yeah, price point was um, uh, thinking Aussie dollars was, yeah, sort of close to 180 to 200 Aussie dollars. Um, so it was priced similarly to, you know, not the top end, not certainly not the top end of thousand dollar plus pairs of shoes, but in that sort of in that sort of mid tier of like good good quality um, leather uh, women's fashion shoes. Um, uh, so yeah, kind of yeah, we had a partnership with David Jones, so you could go in and design your shoes on the David Jones women's shoe floor. So that that was kind of the customer that that we were we were targeting. Um, that, that that sort of level, um, and yeah, yeah. The concept was you could des- you could design your own shoe, so you could go on our website, change the whole shape and structure and color of the shoe, uh, and then we would make the shoe and deliver it to you. Um, or you could go into David Jones and do it on iPads in their stores. And that it had a so you were using um, or you were getting it manufactured in China. Is there a part where you're looking at Fable and going, we need to get the manufacturing piece within Australia for that control? Yeah, yeah. So we, yeah, we built our own shoe factory in China. We initially started working with other manufacturers, and just no one had scaled making shoes, customized shoes, one at a time before. So there was really no one who could could produce for us at scale. So we ended up building our own shoe factory in China. Um, uh, and yeah, definitely. Like, uh, I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons why it makes why we want to do manufacturing in Australia. Probably th- put them in three buckets actually. So. Uh, one is, um, yeah, definitely the coronavirus highlights the sort of fragility of supply of global supply chains. Like if you're sourcing uh, sourcing ingredients from one part of the world, manufacturing in another part of the world, and customers are somewhere else, then there's a lot of things that you know. When everything's working smoothly, it's fine, but there's a lot of things that can break. It's definitely, a, yeah, definitely a fragile supply chain. So and we're seeing that with coronavirus. So it's good good reason to manufacture uh, want to manufacture in Australia. Uh, second thing is, I think particularly in food, um, Australia's got a fantastic brand uh, globally in, in food. So, yeah, 
produce that's grown in Australia is uh, and is yeah considered particularly in Asia as being yeah really high quality. We've got excellent food safety standards, um, relatively sparsely populated compared with um, countries in Asia. So good sort of clean growing environments. Uh, and so yeah, I think all of that adds up to you know for a pair of shoes, people don't necessarily mind where those are made, but for food. People, uh, people do care a little bit more about the origin of their food. Um, so I think that's a good reason to produce in Australia. And um, yeah, and then just personally, I'd, I mean, I'd love to do it, love to do it as well, just for, yeah, it'd be kind of, kind of exciting and fun to do. And yeah, good thing for the, for the country to, to do it here. I think coming out of all this, like Australia is in such a box seat. I think for years, people have referred to us as food bowl of Asia, but then I think more accurately is the deli of Asia. And it's how can yep. we produce is niche products um quality assured you can tell the provenance behind it it's got this amazing story yeah. from people who are world leaders in multiple areas like if we actually aggregate that all and you look at australia in terms of education and agricultural skill set then yeah. it speeds ahead in that aspect what about Definitely. in in the startup world how so you touched on it at the beginning with you wanted to work for someone else and people in this space in Australia with startups. Do you think there's a mindset in Australian um, food and ag tech that, yeah, we're stuck in a stage of perpetual startup? That's, yeah, it's an interesting question. So uh, a couple of, couple of things. So, yeah, my, on the personal side, my reasoning for going, initially wanting to go and work for someone else in the space was just, I'd just done Shoes of Prey for 10 years. Yeah, it had not, we'd not, you know, we'd failed in the sense that we hadn't hit our objectives and we'd had to end up having to shut the company down. You know, we'd grown to 200 people. I'd just laid six months before, I'd to lay off 200 people and yeah, not return, not weren't able to return money to investors just because we got that market research wrong and the mass market consumer didn't want to customize. So I was feeling, you know, my self-confidence was down and, and I was just not feeling like I wanted, literally the thought of doing another startup made me physically feel ill. Um, so I thought I'll go work for someone else for, um, for a few years and yeah, then, then I, yeah, don't, I, it's not, I won't have the same pressures on myself as what I'd had with Shoes of Prey. Um, and so that, that was kind of my reason for wanting to go and work for someone else. And, then yeah, it was just the the realization that the the category. I was very passionate about wanting to do this, um, and the category was just so young and so new that there were literally no jobs. Like yeah, every everyone was a one, two, or three person startup who wasn't looking to hire. Or even if I did get hired, I'd be I'd be basically just doing the same as what I've been doing with Shoes of Prey anyway. But yeah, without the equity, um, and so yeah, kind of came to the conclusion. Yeah, that, that's kind of what forced the decision of, okay, well, I could, I either don't do something in the alternative protein space or, um, or I, uh, need to, um, need to start something if I want to do it in this category. So that was kind of the personal journey for me there. Um, in terms of, uh, the, yeah, in the category people working together. Yeah. So I suppose I'm, I'm new to the agricultural and food space. Um, so yeah, but everything I, I would, yeah, I would say, I would say it's of, in my experience and maybe it's because this category is new and, and kind of booming, but in my experience, I've found it to be a very collaborative space. Like what are some examples of that? So there's a body called food frontier, uh, like a not-for-profit that's uh, that a guy, Thomas King and, and a few others have set up to um, kind of 
promote the alternative protein category and to help it develop. Um, and so through that, I've gotten to know all of the other businesses in the alternative protein space. And, you know, for the most part, there's a pretty collegiate sort of atmosphere amongst that group. Um, like I'm good. There's another meat alternative company up here on the Sunshine Coast called um, Beef. I'm good mates with the guy who runs that. Um, we, we, when, we're, when we're not in isolation, we catch up fairly regularly. Um, uh, the guys who do V2 food, uh, I, I catch up with them regularly. And uh, so, yeah, I think, I think within, even though we're in some senses competing in the same category, we don't sort of view it like that. We sort of view it as collectively growing the category. Um, in terms of partnering with restaurants uh, in the food service space, like I, I think... I think because there's this consumer demand and like restaurant owners and chefs are seeing customers coming in asking for more um, plant-based menu items, they're, they're really open to, open to working. Like it's, it's not like launching a, I think five years ago it would have been much harder, but I think because there's now this kind of demand from consumers and people can see that they're open to doing it. And that translates also into retailers. Like retailers are really open to these products because they can see the consumer demand. And then even into even into working with manufacturers. Like for example, we, um, we're working with like JBS, the largest meat company in the world based in Brazil. They've got a subsidiary, um, Andrews Meats, Creative Food Solutions. Um, they produce like ready meals into, into, and, uh, and sort of prepared products into food service. Yeah, we're working, we're working with them and, and supplying, with, supplying them and doing some, doing some interesting things with them. Um, uh, we're talking to a number of other kind of meat companies like that. Um, uh, so, and they're all like really open to collaborating and we're open to collaborating with them too. You know, I, I say that our mission is to help end industrial animal agriculture. That doesn't mean we want to destroy all of the businesses in that category. If we can work with businesses in that category and help them to shift to using um, alternative proteins, then that's, that, that's an easier path um, for us to achieving our mission because all that infrastructure already exists. We don't have to go and rebuild it. Um, so from our sense, we're keen to collaborate with, um, with everybody in the industry and everything that we've seen is that people are keen to collaborate back. I mean, yeah, again, I've only been in the industry for sort of 18 months, so I can't comment on ag tech and some of those other, other areas because I've not experienced that. But from where, from where I stand, it's been very collaborative. Yeah, cool. I'm yeah, genuinely excited. And I suppose... One thing that uh, I find frustrating is that when the, it's an us versus them mentality when it comes to this alternative meat space. And I suppose that's where I'm maybe philosophical and naive, but it's all agriculture products that are going into this and there's a consumer yeah, exactly. demand on the other side. So yeah. how can we work together? Like we're, we're going into the same market, so let's share consumer insights. Let's understand the markets better. At the end of the day, I don't think it's going to be um, I understand your mission is to end industrial agriculture, but animals have a, a massive part to play in the ecosystem. Um, we need to keep feeding people. So how can we, I suppose, work together yeah. to make sure people are adequately fed with the right nutrition and creating a better, a better world? So, No, I mean, 100%. Like our product isn't made out of thin air. It's made from mushrooms and coconut oil and soy protein and sugar and yeast extract and uh like we we need uh tapioca flour like we those products come from agriculture um so yeah it might mean some if if our mission is to be successful it might mean some shifts in that industry but all those all those ingredients still need to be grown so 
crops are still going to need to get grown to produce these products and and yeah ready meals are still going to need to be developed our products still need to be converted into burger patties and sausages and you know all these parts of the industry still exist so i, I very much don't see it as a us versus them at all it's for me it's a you know in in my mind that there needs to be a shift away from um, us eating and and there, and there may still well be a place for um, eating animals, you know, like, like some mushrooms, some species of mushrooms need to grow in, you know, or they grow better in, in manure. Like there's still potentially, you know, uh, I think there's ethical, ethical reasons that maybe, maybe there does need to be a full shift in some areas, but, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not like a hard black and white on, on all of these things. Like I think there's still potentially a space for, for, for animals in the agricultural system. I mean, my, my particular, the particular area that I, I feel strongly against is, is factory farming. Um, like I think in, in those environments, um, you know, it's, it's not great. It's really the, the animal's welfare is far from being front and center. Um, yeah. Not necessarily environmentally sustainable and, and yeah, yeah. We, when we eat too much meat, we don't necessarily have to produce meat like that. Um, I think there's lots of opportunities. I don't think it should be an us versus them uh, uh, space. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I like that. And I love the passion as it's coming through because that's the thing I think that distinguishes if I'm to say agriculture, I think anyone who's involved in the industry, there's a, a deep care about something that's bigger than them. And it, like it's coming through with you um, that, yeah, it's not about self gratification or anything like that. It's that there's something far bigger than what you can do behind. It. And that's what I love. And, I think that's the the human aspect and the emotion emotive piece that can come out of this is that's what makes it such a special area when it comes to food. So yeah, no, totally. No, I mean everyone's we've all got it. We all eat. It's like yeah, very, very common sort of part of human existence. Very fun and enjoyable part of human existence. Yeah, yeah, something we all share. You better give it give it a plug. Where can people get the fable foods from at the moment? I suppose in a in a current COVID nineteen, and then is there a list of restaurants available somewhere? Yeah, no, th th thanks, Ollie. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, at the moment, the you can order it through Marley Spoon. So um, it's available through the Marley Spoon ready meal uh, uh, kits. Um, we were in a bunch of restaurants. Um, I mean, the best best thing to do is to go onto our website, fablefood.co, and we've got a list of the restaurants up there. Um, at the moment, we're doing some pop-up, uh, online pop-ups in different locations. So just this week in Melbourne, we had a 48 hour online pop-up where you could order um, Fable and you could order ready meals from a, from a, a barbecue cafe, a barbecue meat restaurant um, called Third Wave that did some, uh, did some plant-based dishes with our product. Um, we're going to do the same thing on the Sunshine Coast uh, this coming week. Well, I'm not, not sure when you're, when you're publishing this, but the... I'll 15th. put this up on Wednesday the 15th, I reckon. Okay, perfect. That's the day it goes live on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, we're going to launch into Harris Farm in New South Wales. So that'll be our first kind of foray into retail. Jump on our website, follow us on Instagram. We've got an email newsletter on our website where we, where we share when, as all these pop-ups are happening. Thanks for tuning in to episode five of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I love chatting with Michael today. I think he brings a really interesting perspective to our food system. As we're touching on towards the end of the conversation, collaboration is the key and areas of our industry are doing a lot better than others. If you'd like to find out more about Michael's company, you can see his details in the show notes below. As always, we'd love your feedback on this week's podcast. Please reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook at humansofagriculture underscore. 
Next week, I'll be jetting off to Tasmania, chatting with Sam and Steph Trathui from the Tasmanian Agriculture Company. They're a really interesting business. They're a beef business without any cows, and at the moment, without a product. But as you'll find out, that will all change later in this year. Can't wait to chat with you again next week. Look after yourselves. Cheers.